So I uh, had the intention in these beginning today and uh, in weeks to come to really start from the beginning uh, with what the Buddha taught as if we didn't know and see if we could start some with his life and his path. So I thought I would start by telling you what I think is an appropriate story to introduce that. It has to do with two weeks ago. I went to talk at a quite lovely uh, retirement development in um, Sonoma County. I look around and I think these kind of developments are housing, uh, mostly independent housing, um, condos and apartments in a very large park-like setting. And um, you need to be 55 to move in there. So I look around, I think most of us, many of us, would qualify for moving in there. So I was invited by the library club. They meet once a month to come and talk. So I came. And they wanted me to talk about what the Buddha taught. And so I arrived, and uh, uh, we walked down the hall to the room where we were going to meet, big library room, and we went in and sat down, and we were just arranging the chairs in a circle to have a conversation when someone noticed that there was a man standing in the doorway. And uh, noticing him standing there, hesitating in the doorway, she said, come in, come in. You know, this is our speaker. We're about to start. And he said, "Uh, there's a woman down the hall just had a heart attack. And I said, well, that's all right. Uh, You can't do anything about it. Just come on in. He said, they've called the paramedics. Someone else said, well, that's a good thing then because the paramedics will know what to do. You come on in. Meantime, I look through the glass doors. They have double glass doors. As I can see down the hall, there's a lot of people going in and out of a particular room down the end of the hall with serious faces, a determined stride, walking in and out of that room. And I realize that although the people that I'm with are the independent livers, they live in the buildings around this particular main building, that this main building where the library is also has a wing that apparently functions as a hospital wing for those people who are not well enough at that point to live on their own. So the librarian started to introduce me, and she said some very nice things, and she said that people were particularly interested in hearing about what the Buddha taught. And as she's introducing me, I notice that the three paramedics are rolling a gurney past these double doors. I see that out of the corner of my eye. And the man who had been in the doorway, who's now sitting in the group, points, points it out to the whole group. He says, see, look out there. See, see, there's a gurney. There are the paramedics. And so another woman said to him, she said, relax. She said, you get used to it. it happens every day. So I, I figured I'm supposed to start to talk. I said, uh, do you get used to it? I said, I'd really like to talk about that. I said, you know, because what the Buddha taught was about the possibility of recognizing, seeing clearly the truth about old age and sickness and death. Really what he talked about in general was the possibility of seeing change in life and change in terms of all kinds of losses the loss of what used to be, all kinds of losses, all kinds of letting go of things you had. And that he taught the possibility of being peaceful, even happy, 
in full awareness of the truth of loss and separation from what is loved, and even big loss like death. So I said, how is it to live in a place where the paramedics come every day? So listen, another man said, he said, listen, there are 200 of us living here, and we're old. Somebody dies all the time. Carpe diem, I say. (laughs) Another woman said, listen, anyway, they don't put on the siren every single time that they come, so I don't know every single time that they come. Another woman said, the reason they don't put on the siren every time that they come is usually when they come, the person is already dead. So so the librarian at that point (laughs) says, how did you first get interested in Buddhism? I think really trying to get me back on the topic. And the truth was, I thought I was on the topic. That is the topic. Because it really is the beginning of the topic, because in the story of the Buddha, it was the realization of old age, sickness, and death that really sent him on his quest. Probably all of you know that, that the Buddha was born 576, they think 576 years before the time of Jesus, that he was born in, uh, in the Sakya province in India, that his father was a dignitary, perhaps the prince of that particular province, that he was born into luxury, and he was born with all kinds of auspicious signs, so the birth stories go, about being a very particular kind of a teacher. And there are myths that have to... I think they're myths. Uh, I hope they're myths, actually, because it's better if it's an archetypal story than if it's an actual event. There are different stories about him growing up in complete um, protection from knowing the truth of decay and aging, that he lived in three protected palaces. Uh, I was delicate, he said. This is the Buddha speaking. Most delicate, supremely delicate. Uh, My lily ponds were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lilies flowered in one white lilies in another, red lilies in a third. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. Uh, My turban, tunic, lower garments, and cloak were all made of Benares cloth. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. Then he went on to talk about I had three palaces and some of the stories are more elegant, and they talk about in these palaces with lily ponds and flowers, the flowers were always plucked before they had a chance to decay, so that in no way did he ever see anything aging, never have to mourn the loss of anything. And those stories go on to say that he grew up and that he married and had a child. He had a son, Rahula, and when Rahula was a young boy, eight, I think, six or eight, young, uh, there, he, had, he saw and understood there is such a thing as change and old age and sickness and death are inevitable. And there are two particular, there are two different birth stories, myth stories that I know. One is that somehow in cover of darkness one night he uh, was able to escape from the confines of his palace and go out amongst, into the world amongst townspeople and that he saw the three sights of an elderly person all bent over and walking in a slow gait, 
and a sick person apparently in some throes of discomfort and a dead person. And also the fourth sight of a monk walking along and he understood from looking at that monk that that monk also saw those three truths about life, old age, sickness, and death, and appeared about him to have the aura of tranquility. And so the message was, this is true about life. Everything that is young and fresh and dear decays and is lost to us. That's the way it is. But it's, it's possible to have a mind that holds that all in awareness and lives anyway with contentment. So that's, I think, what that story is meant to mean. There's a variation of the story, which is not... Maybe that's the story for children he snuck out in the cover of night, because that sounds more like a fairy tale, you know. The other story is that um, messengers, heavenly messengers on some angelic realm, bodhisattvas on some other realm, uh, either incarnated themselves or projected images or did magic, so that without going anywhere he saw an image of old age, sickness, and death and of the possibility of a renunciate life. I like very, I, you know, I like myth stories. The truth is I like all kinds of myth stories. Uh, and my sense of them is that archetypal myth stories stay as viable as they do because they resonate in us. I think for myself... For sure, that particular existential dilemma, that particular awareness that I think happens for everybody at some point in life, uh-oh, incarnation is hard. That's like the first awareness. And uh-oh, I'm in it. <laughs> and uh-oh, there is no way out but ahead. It cannot do anything about this. Having taken birth, there's no way out but forward. And then the question, what will I do? How will I manage this? How will I keep myself comfortable in the inevitable, with the inevitable challenges of loss all the time? For, for sure, the loss of youth, and at some point, the loose loss of vigor, and the loss of health, and the awareness, if we have time, of the loss of life, and if not our own of so many people that are dear to us. You know, in any particular room, we don't have to do it here, but I know that it's true that if we were to say, I look at the age of the people here, how many people here have lost a parent to death? Probably all of us, many of us. Um, I have one friend whose two parents came to his 70th birthday party. Can you imagine? There, there used to be a pizza parlor in Marin that said um, free pizza to anyone overnight on their birthday over 90 when accompanied by a parent. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's a limit, you know. That, so, you know, biblically, we're uh, given three score and ten. Now we imagine much longer because we have such, you know, such health care that extends our life. But it's short in the long run, in the sphere of the cosmos, three score and ten is not that long. So probably most of us have lost one or both parents. 
People have lost siblings, people have lost partners, people have lost children. Um, uh, my, my friend Sheila's 96-year-old mother died last Friday. And Ida was ready to, Ida was sound of mind, old and frail, but sound of mind and really ready to go. So one of the consolations of my friend Sheila, which she told me many times after we talked about it, is she said Ida was really ready to go. Ida really was ready to go. I was really ready to let Ida go. I really was ready to let Ida go. (laughs) And I'm sad. You know, it's a different world without Ida in it. You can no longer call and say, hello, Ma. It's a different thing than before. You know, that even whatever you think about it's better for everyone and who knows if we come back and all of those things. It's a different world. It's awesome, the fact that everything is temporal and that everything is disappearing, fragile. So I actually thought I was on topic. Here's the librarian saying. So just, I'm thinking to myself, okay. I'm going to get myself back together. I'm going to continue now. I'm going to answer the question maybe of um, how did you get interested in Buddhism? And uh, I see that in the corner of my eye that they're now going out with that gurney and that the gurney is empty, which means that that woman has died. I'm thinking to myself, maybe we should sit quietly for a few minutes and think about that woman or think about uh, her spirit or whatever it is that departs out of the body at that moment. You know, death just happened two rooms down. It seems something unseemly about barreling on, about as if it were normal. But then somebody else said, is Buddhism a religion or a philosophy? And all of a sudden, like my mind clear, I said, it's both. And I went on and I taught. Because it became clear to me at that moment that that was happening next door, but it's always happening next door. One way or another, next door down this hall or the next hall or upstairs or across the street or across the world, living and dying is happening all the time. People are getting born all the time. People are dying all the time. Sometimes quite proximal. And in the meantime, here are a dozen live people sitting in a room with me who want to know, is it a religion or a philosophy? And how did you get interested in it? And really, it was clear to me that the only possible thing to do was to have a conversation with them right then, and I did. And completely, my mind was ready to do it. We talked actually for an hour and a half, and I gave meditation instructions, and they meditated. They had great questions and... I thought I did a good job answering it. I had a good time, and all the while I'm thinking about, I wonder, is this callous? Uh, am I, or are they really wise about this happens all the time and here we are alive? Are they in denial at what happened in the next room? Am I in denial about the truth of old age, sickness, and death, and that's why I'm dramatizing this particular one into a whole heroic event that I should now participate in. Uh, you know, there are people dying all the time. I'm thinking all the time, and these people look really fine. He goes, the gurney. They saw it. I thought to myself, who is supposed to be teaching whom in this room? You know, that... 
Here are three paragraphs from. Well, I'm gonna. I won't read you all three paragraphs. I'll read you. I'll, I'll conflate them into one because one of the things about these old Buddhist uh, texts is uh, because they were oral tradition for 500 years, they tend to say a whole thing and then say the whole thing over and just change one word and say the whole thing over and change another word. So I'm going to put all three of them in one. This is the Buddha saying, um, talking about when he was young and uh, didn't see what was true. Whilst I had such power and good fortune when I was young in, in this palace, whilst I had such power and good fortune... Still, I thought to myself, I had the awareness, I think. I think this is, this is referring to having had those sights. When an untaught, ordinary person who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, or is subject to sickness, not safe from sickness, sees another who is sick, or is subject to death, not safe from death, sees another who is dead, he or she is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, forgetting, forgetting that he himself or she herself is no exception. But I, too, am subject to old age, sickness, and death, not safe from old age, sickness, and death. And so it cannot befit me to be shocked or humiliated or disgusted in seeing old age or sickness and death. When I considered this, the vanity of life entirely left me. So I wondered about that line a lot. What does it mean, the vanity of life entirely left me? I thought that maybe it meant something about the ways in which I had thought I... the ways in which I had sought happiness, usually indulging the body, um, making it how it looks dear to us, to oneself. When I realized that there was nothing there to cling to, I stopped clinging. I don't think it means I began to despise the body or I treated it badly. Just thinking that my life could be, thinking that my life could continue to be shielded from any kind of inconvenience. That was, I was disabused of that. I got it that life is going to be challenging, that the flowers will wither, that I will not be protected, that most people are not protected from the rain or the heat or the dew or old age, sickness and death. And that the, the, the point of my life was not to arrange it myself to be comfortable, but to arrange myself to be peaceful and actually benevolent in full awareness of the fact that life is not so comfortable. You know, we sat at the end of when I was with these old, the, the, the old folks, and the, but the, the old folks who are well with the death down the hall. I thought about the end of our sitting, we'd been sitting, I thought about doing some loving kindness at the end. So I mentioned doing loving kindness um, for ourselves and for each other in the room and for the people that were dear to us in the world. And I thought about mentioning, uh, particularly let's have in mind, the folks down the hall because I could see uh, with a sideward glance that there is still a little bit people coming and going. Actually, I was seeing out of the side of my eye, my view here, 
there was somebody out there putting up large sheets of white, uh, you know, those paper on rolls that they use for doing, uh, oh, signs in conferences or something, rolling out long rolls of paper and covering the window wall of that room. You know, in a hospital where the people are in ICU, they have window walls so that the nursing staff can look in and see people without going into their rooms. So the room where this person had been had apparently been one of those window rooms. And I see that they're covering over the walls of the the window walls with paper, also letting me know that there's a person who's died, who's in the bed there, and they're now making that space a private space. So I'm looking down the hall. And I'm thinking maybe I should mention about particularly let's do something for them. And I thought to myself, you know, it just didn't feel right because I don't know this person down the hall. I don't know all the other people in the world who died at that moment. Again, I didn't know. It seemed to me somehow my issue. It wasn't theirs. And I thought it counts if we do loving kindness for all beings everywhere. In everybody's mind, they'll either include or not include. I don't have to put my particular awareness into them. But I thought about it came to me in my mind, and it was odd because you know, sometimes I don't see exactly in the moment why does a particular line of scripture come to me. And the line that I thought of was a line from the Dhammapada that goes like this. It says, whoever realizes impermanence ceases to be contentious. There's something awesome about endings. Death really catches you up short because... That's the most clear of endings. But it takes the wind out of contention. You know, you think to yourself, wow. Just as the Buddha said, I, like all people, am subject to old age, sickness, and death. The vicissitudes of life, whatever happens to everybody else, I am also heir to because I'm a human. And you realize not that it's a bad thing or a sad thing. It's a thing thing. It's what happens having taken form. But it's awesome, and it's awesome. What I used to think it meant, whoever really gets, understands impermanence ceases to be contentious, is that in my interpersonal relationships with other people, I had to be sure that I didn't have any bad relationships. I didn't have any unforgiven um, issues that... Uh, painful, isn't it? Sometimes people will say, you know, I haven't talked to my sister in three years, or, you know, I, I don't talk, my, my son never calls me, or whatever it is. It, it happens sometimes, but it's tremendously sad when that happens, because then all of a sudden, you also hear stories about someone has died, or someone is dying, and then the whole family comes back, and people will report that, and they'll say, you know, I talk, my sister was there, and we talked to each other. We hadn't talked in five years or ten years. And it was really good to get back together, and we really got to talk about how we had offended each other, and we're in a better place now. And you think, how sad about those ten years. Not, may, not maybe even so sad about that lack of relationship. Maybe people had all kinds of other relationships. But sad that for that amount of time, both parties had a certain amount of enmity in their heart. And the enmity in the heart is, in the end, what's hurtful. 
You know, I think to myself, really, I think enmity in the heart is, the, is, is, is painful to the person to whose heart it's in, not to the other person to, to whom they have the enmity. So I'd always thought about that line, whoever really understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. And I thought about it a lot um, in, in uh, oh, do you remember when, uh, on, I'm sure you remember, on September 11th, when uh, people knew they were dying on those doomed flights and they made cell phone calls. Everybody said, I love you. Take care of yourself. Nobody said, I always regretted that you never understood my deepest heart or you know, whatever it was that we do. You don't understand my inner soul, or you know, you watch too much football, or it, it, <laughs> nobody recriminated in the end. You know, when the when the chips are down and you really see, they only have time for one communication. That communication is always "I love you," and I, and that so that when I have thought about that in 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 the past about whoever gets impermanence understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I thought about it really only in the context of relationship. And I really began to think about it in the context of everything. Because I'm in relationship with my life as well. And the events of my life doesn't always have to be a a person on the other end of the moment of contention. I can get annoyed at... um, I can get annoyed at the rain or annoyed at the politicians or annoyed at the traffic or um, annoyed at um, whatever is wrong with my body. I, and, you know, we do get annoyed when we get, when we get um, challenged, when I get challenged in any possible... I think it's a true thing. We get challenged, we get irritable about it. Ah, challenged. Uh, and so it's not to actually have your, a, a mindectomy so we don't respond <laughs> in a normal way. But really, can I notice that I'm challenged? Can I feel bad about being challenged? And can I not be embittered about being challenged? That's really the difference. The not contentious means can I not fight about it? I don't have to like it. But can I not in my heart snarl about it? I've been thinking so much about right speech of the heart. You know, most of us are pretty good about right speech. I'm pretty good about right speech in my relationships. I mean, I'm sure you are too. I mean, we decent folk. You know, we don't vilify people. We don't say terrible things to people. But I really watch in my heart the way that my heart, if I don't pay attention to it, could start to vilify. It's like, and I'm listening to that all the time, you know. Uh, that really there's a difference for me that's so important about seeing that I cannot like something that's going on, have a, a, um, a really negative view of something, and not be angry about it. That an embittered heart really embitters my own experience. I have, a, I have a, a, one of my good teachers, uh, actually a... a, a old rabbi whose name is Zalman Shakta Shalomi, so quite well known, you may know him as well, has a, a wonderful analogy. He said, um, the mind is like tofu, he said. Tofu essentially has no taste. Tofu is blah. Uh, it's, but what you marinate it in makes a whole difference. So if you marinate it 
in a sweet marinade, uh, something that's delicious, then when you eat the cook it, whatever it is, it's a delicious dish. If you marinate it in something that's bitter, it's not good to eat. I think about that. I think about marinating the mind in metta, marinating the mind in benevolence. Which does not mean ever that I have to like what's going on. Actually, it means really all the more reason if I don't like what's going on to marinate my mind in a little metta because otherwise I'm likely to become embittered by what's going on. And that's what I think the, uh, was my new meaning that I in, imputed to anyone who see, really understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. This is the only day I've got. Um, there's a line, actually, it comes to me right this minute. It's one of the lines from Psalms. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be happy in it. And I think to myself, well, I'm not sure. Not every day is, you know, sometimes sad things happen. But I think to myself also, this is the only day I've got to do today. And... Uh, Sometimes there are very hard things that happen in life. So maybe rejoice is a little confusing. I leave, let's leave that out, the rejoice part. But let's, let's not fight with it. Let's just, this, is, this is the only day we're going to have today. I'll have to figure out the rest of that psalm line to do something to temper it a little bit. <laughs> really about having a heart that allows and doesn't fight. I know that I've told you, but since this is my first day back for a while, I get to say it. And then you can tell me if I've said it more than once a month. But Ajahn Sumedho, who's a very um, revered teacher of mine, said that lovely line. He said, when things get difficult, I say to myself, it's like this, and then I'm all right. I want to have a mind that says, it's like this. I don't like it, but it's like this. Um, one of my daughters called me the other morning. I'm happy to tell you, because I'm now getting better, that I pinched a nerve in, in, in my neck a couple of weeks ago. Who knows how? I don't know how. Uh, so it's been on again, off again. You may have seen me walking around here, if you were around this last week, with one of those neck collars and... Anyway, I'm getting better. But, you know, it's always one day forward, one, you know, two steps forward and one step back with these kinds of injuries. And uh, my elder daughter called me the other day, and she said, how are you doing, Mom, with the uh, neck? And I said, well, today it's a little worse than yesterday, so I'm uh, thinking about becoming despondent. <laughs> so, so this is what happens if you're a mindfulness teacher and your family listens to what you say. <laughs> she said, well, Mom, I think you have a choice. <laughs> you could either go with the despondent or not despondent. What do you think is a wiser choice? <laughs> so, <laughs> now, really, this is, the reason I tell you that is not just to tell you a pleasant story about about my family, but because I think the essence of what the Buddha taught, and one of the re- one of the things that I think liberation means, is the ability to make a choice, because sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't, and so to be sure to say that, because lest anybody think that that means unless we are rejoicing and being happy, in a moment when we're absolutely 
It's not available. The heart falls out of the body and it's just not there. I think what the Buddha taught is conditioning the heart that more and more is free to make the decision for what it does with itself. You know, I'm, I realize as I'm talking to you that I'm using the word heart and mind um, fairly interchangeably. But actually, it is. In, in Pali, that's the same word for heart and mind, heart-mind. So that we tend to think that the mind thinks and the heart feels. Actually, the heart-mind, if you will, thinks and feels all the time. It understands and it responds would be a better way. We think, think and feel, but how about understand and respond, and then it's a general kind of a thing. And what the Buddha taught was really the understanding that we could begin to condition the mind that was freer to choose. His was free to choose. Mine, I think, after 25 years, is freer to choose. And uh, freer is very rewarding. I'm happy about that. It doesn't have to be completely. It gives me a lot of confidence that this is a path that you do for the whole rest of your life. So let's go back to the Buddha and what he did. Having had this awareness that, uh, uh uh-oh, there is a problem with incarnation, one way or another. Does that, by the way, that story of that being an archetypal myth resonate with you? If you thought about it, was there some moment in your life when you thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is complex, this business of being a person and having a life, (laughs) to figure it out? I figure everybody here is here because the sense of a spiritual life or a spiritual practice, not everybody relates to that. Well, not everybody relates to it in those words, you know. Although, I have the feeling that if we turned to people on the muni bus or in an airplane and said, I'd be really interested in knowing what you're doing to keep your heart alive these days, that sometimes I say that people say, oh, they think I was weird. But I don't, I don't know because everybody has managed to keep their heart alive or is trying to. Whether or not they're going to call it a spiritual quest But what if we said the spiritual quest is trying to keep your heart alive and responsive and vibrant, able to connect itself? I say to people these days, that's the whole of my practice. I think to myself at different times, is my heart available to me? Do I care in this moment? Because it's very easy, given the challenges of life, to say, to retreat into one's own self-absorbed space. And I actually think that that's the place of the most pain. Actually, you can tell even by the term itself, self-absorbed means it's caught in itself, means there's something that's in pain. And actually, when we are not self-absorbed, the self that needs help isn't there. When the self that needs help isn't there, neither is suffering. my, My teacher, Joseph, years ago, used that line from the philosopher Wu Wei Wu, and he said, Wei Wu Wei, I got that wrong. He said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. Uh, I understand it more and more as years go by. You know, there is certainly a personality and all of that. I mean, and a body that people recognize. When I came back today, everybody said, welcome home, Sylvia, because they they recognized that this was me, not Donald. So there's a body and there's a personality, but 
The I that we're talking about when we say if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will, is not um, the I that that is uh, associated with this personality or with this body. It's the I that's a suffering I. It's an I that is in pain. It's an I that needs something to be different. That's the I that's... Um, when there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. It's the insistence that things be otherwise. And the Buddha's quest became, how can I find the mind that doesn't insist that life be other than what it is? That was really what he went to find. How can I make a mind that says, this is what's happening, and I somehow will overcome the vain and uh, insistence that it be other than what it is, that it be consistently comfortable. So he left his family, went off and became an ascetic monk, which is what people did in those days when they embarked on a spiritual quest. In a sense, um, there are two ways to think about this. One is to think this way. The monastic life that the Buddha undertook, which I have a tremendous respect for, is not was first of all in those days the way that people did spiritual practices. It wasn't so much of an alternative. I think that we now have the possibility of uh, of um, a contemplative life in the midst of um, modern culture, and even a uh, retreat life from time to time. If we want it, um, we have this great facility here and other great facilities for intensive uh, contemplative practice. In those days, the notion was that uh, you could overcome the mind's need to have things a different way by the renunciate life. The renunciate life was really the ascetic life, so he took on a life of real asceticism he left and spent three years with each of, uh, sequentially, with two of the best teachers in his part of India and did very austere practices. He um, learned how to focus his attention so that the, the attention would never waver. His mind could dwell in all kinds of rarefied states. He fasted. The story is that uh, he tried to eat less and less, like if you starve the body you would starve the mind of its uh, greed and desire. Overcome greed and desire. Covetousness, it's usually called in the text. So he was down to a cup of rice a day for his diet. And then it says, but I still thought that was too much, so I did a cup of rice a week. Then he said, I thought it was too much, so I ate one grain of rice a day. So I like to think that these stories are mythical stories. You know? <laughs> so I, I don't have to worry about his metabolism or something. Because what I actually like to think about the Buddha, which he also says in many other places in the text, is I am an ordinary mortal. And I really put a lot of... Uh, um, I like the fact that he was an ordinary mortal because it makes practice available for me as well. So anyway, but here, here it is. And he says, when I touched my belly flesh, I could touch my backbone. And I was so emaciated. But the point of all those was to say that I had overcome every bodily uh, need. But still, the mind still 
got stuck, the mind yearned, that I had not come to a place of peace. And I hadn't come yet to real understanding of the cause and the end of suffering. There are all kinds of times in the text when the Buddha says, I came to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So after these six years, the stories are wonderful, the myth stories and maybe true stories that he studied with one particular teacher who said at the end of the time, you know as much as I do now, why don't you teach with me? You're so accomplished. And he said, no, I haven't figured out the end of suffering. And he went to another teacher and uh, studied with him and who invited him to teach. And he said, no, uh, I haven't really, I've done all these things and I have not yet discovered the cause and the end of suffering, all those beings out there caught in this web of uh, continuing suffering in life. And I really need to find out the cause and end of suffering. So the story is that he left, went off on his own, went to Benares, uh, went to Bodh Gaya, went to Bodh Gaya, uh, took a meal of, uh, uh, I think it's rice gruel. Was it rice gruel? Do you remember what it says? In milk, milk and rice or rice milk or... Um, Later on, uh, he says it was one of the two important meals of his life, the one, that meal, and the meal just before he died, um, and sat down under the bow tree and said, I'm not getting up until I've understood the cause and the end of suffering. I love that. because I, I think that to myself sometimes when I sit down and I'm a mess. It's very nice to say to myself, I'm not getting up until I have completely liberated myself. And uh, somebody laughed. <laughs> I love it because I also don't seriously think that I'm going to get enlightened by saying that. But there's something so um, uh, and no, inspiring about saying it that when I sit down, I say, I'm not getting up until I have cleared my mind of all this nonsense, and I'm perfectly clear about this, there's something in that determination that cuts through a great deal of fog. Why not? I mean, it's way better than sitting down and saying, well, I'm going to sit down now, and maybe I'll figure it out, maybe I won't, and who knows, maybe I'll get more confused. I mean, that is not the, the quality of determination. You sit down and you say, I'm not getting up until I'm clear. And this is probably the place at which we'll leave the story, but because it, you know, when you have a sequel to a story, you have to leave it in an exciting place. <laughs> he sat down, and all through the night, he was assailed by the forces of Mara, and Mara is um, and the forces of um, the personification of evil, confusion. Mara is uh, the Buddha's enemy. Mara wants to keep the Buddha from triumphing. And uh, so uh, provokes his mind all night long with images of things that might be tantalizing because they're sexually stimulating or images that might be frightening because they are um, alarming. Assailed him with arrows and metaphorical arrows of thoughts and feelings. And uh, which is our Buddha here? Oh, this is the good Buddha. Okay. Uh, as opposed to the not good Buddha. Now, sometimes you see Buddhas with their hands like this. This Buddha has his hand on the ground. He has one hand in his lap and one hand on the ground. And this is presumably the gesture that the Buddha made at that point 
put one hand on the ground and he said to Mara and the forces of confusion, I have a right to be here. Don't you, doesn't your hair stand on end? When you, mine does still. I've said that a hundred times and I like to say that. You put down your hand and you say, I have a right to be here. And And I guess you have to come back next week and see what happens. (laughs) I actually mean to end it right there. But you know the story. I mean, it isn't as if I going to come back and find that something else happened to him. But really what I want to do in the next couple of weeks is tell the story of the life of the Buddha. And particularly next week, talk about what he taught to his friends, We'll tell the the, uh, the wonderful story of uh, his uh, enlightenment experience and his meeting of five ascetics with whom he had practiced beforehand for lots of, for a lot of that practice time. And it's a great story because uh, this is the coming attractions. Uh, it's a great story because uh, he had left them and gone off to practice by himself. And the story is that after his own enlightenment, when um, he got ready after some period of time of staying in uh, in Bodh Gaya and consolidating his understanding that he then uh, went off on his own and he met uh, the um, these five ascetics uh, um, in the Deer Park in uh, near Benares. And uh, the story is that they said to each other, here comes that... Um, lazy fall-away monk um, Gautama who has quit the ascetic life. So we'll spurn him and we won't talk to him. And uh, presumably, as they walk towards him, determined to spurn him. This very unmonk-like thing, if you ask me. Spurning is not one of those <laughs> high things. But, uh, but it's a great story to tell children. So that we're not going to talk to him, but they were so struck by what they clearly saw as an amazing aura of clarity and peace coming out from him, that they stopped and he taught them, and he taught them what he had understood, come to understand in that whole night under the bow tree. So we'll, we'll start from there and we'll do that. I want to tell you that story and uh, talk more about the particular practice of clearing the mind that... Um, has come down from the Buddha, time of the Buddha, till now. The practice of mindfulness, and we'll run them together. I want to tell you the story, and I want to do the four foundations of mindfulness and the practice of metta simultaneously, because I want to tell the story, and I want to do the practices that come from the story. So we'll do that for uh, the next uh, long period of time. I want to tell you that it's a great pleasure to be back. I love it that I'm back. And uh, I love it that you're back. So let's sit for one minute. May whatever merit we have um, 
accrued from our practice and our study together, from our interest, from our diligence, from our intention, from our own desires to come to a place of liberation and freedom. May whatever merit we accrue be offered freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 4, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.